0: Hey, Redemption Arcadia. The reading is from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, Redemption Arcadia. Glad to be with you again this Sunday. Uh, If you would, get your Bibles and just turn to James chapter 1. We're going to be... Primarily in there, which was what the reading is today. I have some updates for you that I'd like to kind of roll through and a prayer request. First of all, we are going to start working our way through Psalm 23, yes, but that's not going to be until Sunday, May 24th. Uh, The lead team met this week and decided that uh, we needed a two week mini series for May 10th and May 17th that would be rooted in Romans chapter 14. So if you want to read ahead, Uh, read Romans chapter 14 for the next two weeks, and then we will start Psalm 23. Uh, Redemption Arcadia is going to go through Psalm 23 for five weeks. Some of the other congregations are going to go three or four weeks, maybe even six weeks, but we're going to do it uh, for five weeks starting May 24th. Uh, As far as reopening the church goes, um, there's been a lot of discussion about that. Obviously, maybe this week you heard uh, Governor Ducey uh, said that we're Extending the stay-at-home order with some modifications through May 15th, Uh, we're kind of looking at maybe mid to late June, reopening the church on a limited basis, and we have details that we're working out on that, and then maybe late July we would be opening on, on a less restricted basis Um, We do have some details on that. If you'd like to know more, you can email me or uh, text me about that. But uh, all of this is fluid. You need to understand that as far as we know right now, maybe mid to late uh, June on a limited basis. So in the midst of that, because it is so fluid, we're trying to make decisions uh, based on the latest information, which seems to change almost daily. I do have a prayer request for uh, all of the pastors and the staff at Redemption Arcadia, that we'd like you to be praying for us. And here it is. Uh, We would pray, we would ask you to pray that we would lead not out of fear, but out of dignity and honor for those that we are leading and for each other, and that we would lead not out uh, a sense of social pressure or competition, but we would lead by the wisdom of God. That's really important. Uh, Lots of chatter out there, and so we would appreciate that as a prayer request to all of you. So let's get into the Lord's Prayer. This is our last week in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter six. We're looking at verse uh, 13. Uh, Last week, we talked about the verse uh, where it says, uh, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And this week, we are looking at um, that last verse of the prayer that's in the text of Matthew, verse 13. God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's important to understand that the translation of deliver us from evil can also very easily, very readily be translated as deliver us from the evil one. Uh, We need to remember that uh, evil is not just a concept, but it's also a person, and that would be the adversary, uh, Satan. So right out of the gate, what I'd like to do Uh, is is spend quite a bit of time, because this is important, uh, talking about the apparent contradiction that we see in Matthew chapter 6 verse 13 and what uh, Mark just read for us in James chapter 1. Verse 13 in Matthew says, God lead us not into temptation and James chapter 1 Says God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. Ah, there's a contradiction. The Bible is all wrong. We have to throw the whole thing out. Not so fast. We're going to spend some time working through this. Uh, first of all, the evil and tempting desires of our hearts where did those evil and tempting desires come from? Where did they originate? Did God put those desires in our hearts? And the answer is no you need to look at Genesis chapter three. We're gonna talk quite a bit about Genesis chapter three uh, today. I have often said that if you wanna understand the rest of the Bible, you need to understand Genesis chapter three. If you were to read Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, skip chapter three and then read chapter four, immediately in chapter four, you would realize that you've missed something of significance, that you skipped something. Genesis chapter three is the key to everything else. It's where Adam and Eve commit the original sin by rebelling against God, breaking relationship with him, eating the fruit, and then blame shifting. And that sin then is imputed to everybody else who has ever lived after Adam and Eve, so you and I. It's called imputation of original sin. We are born into a sin nature. So those evil desires, we hate to think about that. For us, it harms our self-esteem. People are not basically good. Our evil desires, our temptations to sin, come from us, our own hearts, our own minds. We need to understand that. God does not tempt us. We tempt ourselves. That's what James says. We'll get into that in a minute. But God does bring us into situations to test us, most certainly. And temptation is one of the ways that we can be tested. Now, why would God test us It's bad enough to think that he might tempt us, but even testing us is is hard for some of us. Why would he test us? I actually think that's the simplest question to answer here. God tests us because that's one way, not the only way, but one way that we develop character. We develop perseverance, strength, and contentment. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. This is a little bit before the passage that Mark read. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. You hear me cite it all the time. James opens his letter and immediately he writes this. Consider it all joy, beloved, when you encounter various trials of many kinds, trials of many different uh, situations and effects because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. It produces steadfastness, produces endurance. It produces patience. It produces character. It produces something good in us. Uh, Paul has... A similar idea, if you read Romans chapter 5, listen to what Romans chapter 5 says. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, verse 3 But we rejoice in our sufferings. James says we rejoice in trials and tribulations and challenges. And Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So so God has a specific reason why he would test us. And we are tested constantly. God also tested the Jews out in the wilderness, Here's what Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse two says. As they're getting ready to go into the promised land, here's what it says. You shall remember the whole way, the whole way into the promised land, that the Lord your God has led you to these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So God does test us. Proverbs 20, 24 says, a man or a woman's steps are from the Lord. Our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, used to say all the time, here's why God tests us. It's for our good and his glory. God tests us because it actually is good for us. It it, it means that we have to engage our faith. We have to rely on the gospel. We have to... uh, chase after and, and submit to the resurrected Christ in us, the Holy Spirit, it's for our good. It develops our character and it's for God's glory. God's glory is revealed in the testing that comes about for us because, because the gospel is evident in that testing. And so that's also for God's glory. And then consider this. This is a theme that I, sa- I found repeated over and over as I was reading and studying for this passage. And consider this not just because It is profound, but because it's also so blatantly obvious that we often miss it. Every step you and I take is a step into the presence of temptation. That's just the way this world is. Everywhere we go, we're going to be tempted. Our hearts are going to see and engage things that we desire that we shouldn't have. That's the reality of life in this world. Jesus tells us at the end of John chapter 16... He says, in this world, this fallen, broken world, you are going to have trouble. He states a fact. He states a, a, a reality. Let me ask this question. It's a rhetorical question. You know where I'm getting at. You know what I'm getting at with this question, though. How many of you have had radical success completely avoiding temptation, trouble, trials, pain, hurt, and suffering in your lives in this world? Has anybody had complete and radical success avoiding any of those things in this world? No. Trials, temptation, pain, suffering, it's just coming at us every single day. And I know, I know I'm around a lot of academics, uh, especially around the community college, and I hear this all the time. I know uh, you, you may want to say to me, but, but Frank, success in this endeavor is just around the corner. We've got science on our side. We've got positive thinking. We've got education. And of course, if we could just get the right political platform, all of these problems would be solved just never gonna happen. You know and I know there is rarely a moment in our lives when temptation is not in our hearts and at our heart's doorstep. There's rarely a moment in our lives when disbelief and disobedience are not a possibility. There's rarely a moment in our lives when trouble isn't knocking at the door. So here is where our confusion and the apparent contradiction comes from. I told you I'd get to this, Throughout the New Testament, there is one Greek word that we actually translate based on context as tempt, as test, and as trial. And this word, the base word, can be a noun or it can be a verb. So tempt, test, trial, even tribulation is sometimes uh, translated from this one Greek word. One of the Greek New Testament scholars that I read uh, says it this way. This word has a wide semantic range. And we'll see that in the upcoming James passage. So the key here in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew six thirteen, the prayer is not asking that we never have to deal with temptation. That's not reality. Rather, it's asking God to protect us from temptation, having its way with us and reigning in victory over us. We are going to be tested. We are going to be tempted. So the, the prayer is really, God, help us pass this test. Every day, I will tell you, I stand before the banquet table of temptation, and I need God's strength and his wisdom, his resurrection power to be delivered from failing and falling in the midst of that test, in the midst of that temptation. Uh, when Jesus, by the way, taught this prayer, when he got to verse 13, Everybody in his audience, because virtually all of them were Jews at this time, everybody in his audience would have realized that he's pointing at a very common daily Jewish prayer that all of them used to pray at that time. And that prayer goes like this. Yahweh, we know that we will be tested. Please do not let us fail when we are tested. So there's a reference to this common cultural Jewish prayer that Jesus slides in there. Uh, one scholar writes of Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, the proper interpretation is not, do not let us be tempted, but rather protect us from failing when we are tempted. So think about that now in our very current context. Just for a minute, I want to go there. We're being tested, are we not, in this virus crisis? I mean, we've talked about this in past messages. I, I keep asking, what are we learning in the midst of this Uh, Pandemic in the midst of the stay at home orders. Uh, What are we learning? What has God revealed to us? So we're being tested, but be sure we are also being tempted. We're being tempted in the midst of this lockdown. Temptation there's the temptation to despair, to lose hope. There's the temptation to comfort ourselves with unhealthy and even sinful things. There's the temptation to judge others and create division. And there's the temptation to binge-watch Friends, which is probably wrong. And I just lost my two daughters, by the way, on this video. So let, let's go to James now, that passage that Mark read for us. James chapter 1. I, I am going to start uh, in... There it is. Whoops. I am going to start again with verses 2 and 3, just to remind us of what he says there. And then I'm going to jump to verse 12, because he kind of picks up that conversation again in verse 12. So James writes, starting in verse 2, "...count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness." That word translated steadfastness, hupomene, can also be translated as endurance, perseverance, and patience. But what's interesting is that the word trials and the word test, testing uh, in verses 2 and 3 are the same root word in the Greek. And in fact, the word trials can be translated as temptation. So trial, tribulation, temptation, they're all in that same group. And then we go down to verse 12. Now listen to what James writes here. Blessed is the man or the woman who remains steadfast under trial, there's that word again, For when he has stood the test, there's that word again, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And then he gets into this idea of temptation. Even though it's the same word, the context changes, and so now we're talking about temptation. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The words lured and enticed are interesting. There's a, a creation there of certain imagery that James wants the reader to see. Verse 15. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So I've already mentioned that Greek word translated test or trial or, or tempt and it's in all of these verses here, has a wide semantic range. And so we have to be careful of context when we're reading and when we're interpreting and when we're translating. What a shock. Context is important in Bible reading. Where have you heard that before? And as we've been saying, God does not tempt us, but he will test us. And remember, even Jesus was tested. Job was tested. Abraham was tested. David was tested. Jackie is routinely tested on a daily basis. God tests us in order to strengthen us. That's what I tell Jackie all the time. It doesn't always work for me, but he does. He tests us in order to strengthen us, to build our character. That's James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Trials and hardships inevitably come, but also temptation comes as well. As James says, it comes from our own desires. Notice he's very specific. All the temptation stuff comes from us. It's always us. Sin is never God's fault. The Lord's prayer could be said this way. Uh, Lord God, please save us from ourselves. That would be another way of saying verse 13 in the Lord's Prayer. And again, this is one of the reasons why I just love Genesis chapter 3 in helping us understand the rest of the Bible. Because you see in chapter 3 the same pattern that you and I engage in when it comes to temptation and sin. Uh, The man and the woman were tempted. You see that in verse 6. And they were tempted by what I call, you know, we have the Trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In chapter 3, verse 6 of Genesis, I see what I call the triad of temptation. It says that when the woman saw that the food was good to eat, it was pleasurable to her flesh, that it was a delight to her eyes, that it was glitzy and she was attracted to it, eye candy, and that it was desired for making one wise. Another way to say that is it was desired for making one superior or feel like they are superior to other people. In other words, it's pride. So that's the triad of temptation, our flesh, our eyes, and our pride. Those things will get us into trouble every single time. So when that happened, which was in her heart, she took the fruit, she disobeyed God, and she broke the commandment from a proper authority, and she broke relationship with that same authority. That's what happens when we sin. We we break relationship with the proper authority when we sin. It also hurts us, but we break that relationship And then once that is done, notice the next step, which is exactly what we do, is to blame shift. So they ate the fruit, realized they were naked, made the fig leaf coverings, and then hid from God when he came into the the garden to, uh, to be with them, to fellowship with them. And so God calls out, where are you? And the man answers, Adam answers, and he says, well, I was naked, so I hid. And God says, what is this that you've done? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And what does Adam say? He says, the woman you put here gave me the fruit and I ate it. It was her fault and it was your fault, God. Isn't that what we do? We sin, we get caught. Well, it's that person's fault. And you know what? God, too. It's his fault as well. That's our pattern. And of course, God then goes to the woman and says, what's this that you've done? And she does the same thing. Well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Where's the the personal responsibility in any of that? That's our pattern with sin. We we sin, we break relationship, we miss the mark, and then we blame shift. One of God's frustrations with Adam and Eve was their lack of self-awareness and self-prosecution. It's why I speak so much of that now. We need to have a better handle. You and I need to have a better handle on our blind spots because we all have them. And I want you to listen carefully to this. This means that we need other people to speak into our lives and not just to affirm us. If all you have are communities and relationships that only affirm you, you're headed for trouble. You're not growing. And there's a severe comeuppance that's headed your way. And I know that this is an especially tough and challenging message Today, when most of us in the last 10 years, most of us have completely arranged our lives into comfortable little echo chambers where all we hear are things that affirm us. And we can do that online and social media and we can do that in person. And, And we arrange these communities and relationships so all we're doing is just confirming each other and affirming each other. And that's a problem. We need input that challenges us, that challenges our messed up suppositions because we all have messed up suppositions. And I mean that in the realm of theology and in philosophy, in the realm of leadership, in the, in the, in the realm of work, in the realm of whatever it is, education. We need people who, who lovingly challenge us and challenge our presuppositions. Yes, you need to be careful who it is. You don't want somebody who's going to use this uh, in a nefarious way, You need to trust who it is. But if you have no one speaking clear, helpful, sometimes contradictory to you, truth into your life, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. I'm in trouble. As your pastor, wouldn't you like it? Wouldn't you like to know that there are people challenging me on on certain things to make sure that we're doing it well? So, back to James chapter one. Uh, How often have we found embedded references to Old Testament texts in the Lord's Prayer and in these other New Testament passages that we're using to help us understand the Lord's Prayer. Well, we have an allusion here as well in the the James passages to the wilderness experience of God's people, to both Exodus and Deuteronomy. Exodus 17 tells us that when the Israelites were in the wilderness being unfaithful, They never looked at themselves as the reason that they were having so many problems, but rather quickly and readily blamed God for every hardship and every single sin. That was a problem. And think about what James says here. I'm going back now to this this language of lured and dragged away is is one way of of, uh, interpreting it. Um, If you know what an angler is, it's a person who fishes, this is angler language that James is using. He wants this image of somebody baiting a hook with the right kind of bait to be able to catch a fish. If you're, a good, uh, if, if you're good at fishing, you're, you're going to study where you're going to fish, what kind of fish are there, and you're going to study what are the best lures for those fish. That's what James is talking about here. But what he's saying is that we angle ourselves. That's what we do. We know how to bait that hook with the stuff that we like. We are the ones that are luring ourselves away and then dragging ourselves into death because of sin. That's what James is saying. He's saying, you really can't blame God for this. You've got to start looking at yourself. This has been a problem for thousands and thousands of years with God's people. We need to understand that. So the temptation is ours. By the way, this, this question often comes up in this context. Is God ever tested by us? Can we test God? And the answer is yes. Do you know when, when God is tested most? It's when we test his patience, which is all the time. We don't test God the way he tests us. He tests us sovereignly and righteously. But we do test him. We test his patience with our foolishness and with our self-assurances that we know better than God. And then there's Deuteronomy 16 that teaches that sinful people should not put God to the test because that's not going to be helpful or end well. And again, that's one of the things that James is alluding to here. So this whole idea of tempting and testing, trials and trouble, here's how the New Testament scholar Craig Keener says it. God never tests us in the sense that he is looking for us to fail. Rather, he tests us in love, seeking to strengthen us in our character to develop perseverance, patience, and steadfastness. Satan's goal is to see us fail, and his hope is that we do fail. It's, I can't help, again, I can't help but think of Tom Schrader, our founding pastor, his, his very common illustration, whenever he talked about testing and tempting, he said it's spiritual aerobics. God is working us out. When he tests us, we're getting stronger. we're, We're hitting the treadmill of God's testing. We're hitting the weight room of God's testing. It's spiritual aerobics. Perseverance, endurance, patience, contentment, steadfastness, we need to understand those are not spiritual gifts. God doesn't just give those to us like he does love, peace, joy, patience, all of those things. Rather, what he's doing is he's 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 testing us so that we can grow in the character of those things. You know, Paul, in the midst of an argument, by the way, he has something that, to say that might help us in the midst of this. He was, he was having a bit of an argument with some of the people in the church at Corinth, and some of his counsel can help us in this situation with temptation. Instead of baiting our own hook, Paul might suggest, why don't you just take every thought that you have captive to Christ, every desire of your heart, take it to Christ and see what he has to say about it. Let me just read that uh, passage. It's it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and it's interesting. If you know about that second letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth, uh, you know that, that the first nine chapters are sort of a celebration. Paul has gotten good news from the church at Corinth. He's excited. But then at the end of writing chapter 9, apparently he receives another letter from the church in Corinth. And this letter that he receives, the second letter he receives from the church at Corinth, is not so good. It's not so happy. It's a, church, it's a letter that is accusing Paul of being somebody who he's not. It's accusing him of walking in the flesh and not according to the... Spirit. And Paul has an answer for this. So the tone of the letter changes decidedly at the start of chapter 10. So let's read it together. So Paul writes, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. That is a snarky comment from Paul. You need to understand that. He's saying, that's what you're accusing me of being. And I'm about to tell you, that's not who I am. Verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against someone who suspects us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And here's the payoff verse, we destroy arguments And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, he's talking about it there in regard to false teachers. But that same idea of taking thoughts captive to Christ works when it comes to testing and tempting as well. Rather than giving into the temptation, rather than whining about God testing us, we need to go to God. We need to take all of these thoughts to God in prayer and see what he has to say, see what his scriptures have to say, make sure that what we believe the spirit is telling us and what the scriptures are telling us line up and match and then we might have an answer because God is going to always give us a way through this. If God does not obliterate that mountain in front of you that you don't want to climb, God guarantees that he will climb it with you. That's the whole idea. That's what we need to understand. One more thing. That brings up this idea that some people say, well, don't worry, God will never give you more than you can handle. God will never give you more than you can handle. Here's the challenge with that saying. God will never give you more than you can handle. That seems to leave God out of the picture other than him giving us stuff, other than him testing us. That's a problem, and it's a misunderstanding and a misinterpretation of of a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let me read those verses to you. So this is Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Paul writes, So, If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. In other words, if you think the reason you're strong, if you think the reason that you're doing well, if you think the reason that you're conquering is because of how wonderful you are, you're about to fall. That's pride kicking in. Pride always comes before the fall. He says, don't do that. He says, no temptation, by the way, there's that Greek word again, no test, no trial, no temptation has overcome you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or tested beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, here's the part we always forget. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. That way out is Jesus, the resurrected Christ, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the power of the resurrection. It's the gospel. That's the way out. We need to take every thought captive to Christ. Paul is very consistent in his teaching about these things. The fact is, we really can't handle it. It's not us handling it. That just leads to pride. It is the power of God. It is the power of God. It's the filling of the Holy Spirit, the constant study, uh, prayerful study of the scriptures. And it's the power of the resurrected Christ in us that is handling it. In fact, again, a couple weeks ago, reading for this passage I read this by a scholar, and he's just making a suggestion for us to tweak our thinking a little bit. His salvation theology is just fine. It's rooted in the cross and the resurrection. But he writes this. He said, consider the possibility that Jesus actually won our salvation not on Friday, but he won our salvation on Thursday when he prayed through his temptation to pass the cup of wrath and skip the cross. Remember that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? He says, Father, let this cup pass by me. I don't want this cup of wrath. Essentially, he's saying, if there's another plan out there that we could turn to, let's turn to that plan. I don't want to go to the cross. But then in the end, he said, but not my will, your will be done. Christ saved us when he resisted the temptation to not do the sacrifice to save us. That's big. Here's the last thing we should consider because I know some of you are looking at the prayer in Matthew and saying, wait, it's not complete. There's still one more line of the prayer. When we recite the prayer, we end it with, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen, yes, that's true. Uh, The problem here is it's a a textual problem. Uh, That last line of the prayer is not in the earliest transcripts of the book of Matthew that we have. It was added later by a scribe. But it's a great way to end the prayer, and it's not theologically incorrect. In fact, I would think of it this way. It's helpful because ending the prayer that way, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, it points us back to God. The prayer starts by pointing us to God. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Points us to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's pointing us to God. Just like the way the Bible starts, the first four English words in the Bible, in the beginning, God. It's not in the beginning, you and I. It's in the beginning, God. This is a book about God. So the prayer starts by pointing us to God. The Bible starts by pointing us to God. And then the prayer ends in this way by pointing us to God. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, just the way the Bible ends. In Revelation chapter 22, when it ends with, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. And that's our prayer now. Our Savior would come, that he would be with us, that he would fill us, and that his resurrection power would be evident to all. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this prayer that you have taught us, and we thank you um, that the leadership of Big R thought enough of this prayer during this particular time in context to have us proclaim it and teach it and point us to the gospel. It's beautiful how every situation that we can encounter has wisdom from you that can be applied. We need to remember that. Sometimes it's direct wisdom. Other times it's it's simply an ethos of wisdom that we need to seek you, that we need to take every thought captive to you. We're thankful for that. We thank you for this prayer. And I pray that we would continue to pray it, that we would keep it on our hearts, keep it in our hearts, keep it on our lips. Let us recite these words often. God, we look to you for all strength during this challenging time. We pray that you would lift us, that you would empower us, that you would encourage us, that you would give us your wisdom, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus, even if it's just in your front yard.